reading John Locke, I have this image. I imagine a man in the woods with a fairly simple hand axe, you know, maybe some other tools, and he's setting to the work of building a house. Now, there's nothing there waiting for him. There are no finished materials, not really even any cleared land. And he's building not from nothing at all, of course, not from nothing at all, but he's building with only the raw materials that he could find in the world around him. This is a very different activity, if we can mix our metaphors between the philosophical and the the carpentry-related. It's a very different activity than we'll find when we read Mill, or certainly, say, Hegel, a couple centuries after Mill. Now, of course, as I say, that's an analogy, but it reflects the way philosophical thinking tended to occur in Locke's time. Locke was English. He lived from 1632 to 1704 which was a very significant span of time in English history and the history of philosophical thought. Newton published his principles uh, in 1687, and perhaps even more significantly to our conversation, Descartes published his Meditations on First Philosophy in 1641. Now, we're going to talk today about the political history of this time because it is extremely significant, but it's worthwhile to note also what else was going on in philosophy at this point in history. In his meditations on first philosophy, Descartes was working from what he identified as quote-unquote first principles. First principles in philosophy are whatever the philosopher in question thinks is absolutely certain, a completely sure foundation from which to work that it's not in any way susceptible of doubt. Now, we've all heard that phrase. I think, therefore I am. Of course, that's Descartes' famous quote. What we forget about Descartes' philosophy is that that was not his conclusion. That was his very first step. That was his first principle. I think, therefore I am was the only statement Descartes could make that he believed was entirely certain, and thus certain enough that it was the foundation on which he could build all of the philosophy that proceeded from that first principle, from that core essential premise. Now, as an aside, I got to say, I've always wondered what Descartes himself would have thought about the fact that, that what was for him a premise is now actually his most famous conclusion. It's what we all think of. If you're going to have a poster of Descartes or you're going to quote Descartes, of course you're going to say, I think, therefore I am. But that's a, a conversation for another day, of course. So thinking about first principles, how was it that I think, therefore I am became Descartes' first principle? Again, the only thing that he was entirely sure of and that as a consequence he felt very comfortable in proceeding with his philosophy, building everything else from that premise. If someone could have come along and said, oh, no, 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 it's it's not I think, therefore I am, it's I think, therefore I'm not, or I don't think, therefore I am, or whatever it is. If someone could disprove I think, therefore I am, everything else Descartes wants to accomplish just immediately goes out the window. It's all suspect after that. It's like ripping, literally ripping the foundation out from under a house. Nothing else is going to stand after that. So let's put ourselves in in Descartes' worldview as we did a bit in the last series and start with this assumption. Say that you can't trust your senses. Anything you perceive about the outside world could be a trick. And again, we talked about all this 
for Descartes and many, many other religious thinkers of his time. The world, and that includes, I should say, when I say the world, we often think of our, you know, everything on the other side of our skin. Well, actually, for Descartes, the world included our body to a very large extent. The body was much more part of that corporeal, vaguely untrustworthy world of sin and sensation than it was a part of the far more trustworthy world of the mind. So for Descartes and the thinkers of his time, the world, and again, even the body we inhabit, to live in that world, they were forever at the mercy of the devil and his, his various temptations. So Descartes could not trust the world. He could not trust his own senses, his sight, his hearing. He couldn't trust the feel of the, the vellum under his fingers as he wrote all this down. So from our perspective, from what we've talked about so far, we can imagine Descartes and his thinking emerging directly from the presumptions of the Middle Ages, as we discussed in the first series. Again, everything outside is evil. It's potentially deceptive. It's uncertain. The truth is inside. Truth is inward. Our connection to God is deep, deep, deep inside of us. It's at the deepest point inside of our sort of uh, mental world. That's where we're going to find actual truth. And, you know, not incidentally, that truth that is very far inside of our mental world, it's as far away from the stain of the physical world and our physical selves as it can possibly be. So if you can't trust anything that you see, you can't trust anything you hear or that you touch or that you smell, how do you start the process of understanding the world? How, if, if Descartes is going to do what he's going to do, how do you start the process of trying to explain humankind and its place in the world if the, the very nature of humankind's places in the, in the world is that we really can't trust it? What is the first principle that we can rely on as a foundation for all of our future speculation if we're starting out from where Descartes is starting out? I can't trust my senses. Everything I think I perceive could easily be a lie, could easily be a trick. What if it turns out that, that you know, hey, if everything else is a trick, what if it turns out that I don't even exist, right? How, how far does this, you know, massive conspiracy go? How high up does it even mean that I myself do not exist? What if the idea of my existence itself is a trick that the devil is playing on me? Well, we see the answer kind of buried in the syntax of, of that statement, but Amidst all this uncertainty, and, and this is Descartes' conclusion, amidst all of that uncertainty, I can say one thing that I know to be true, that, I, that cannot be susceptible of some kind of trick. I think. I can look inward. I can reflect to myself on the danger of the sensual world as an illusion and as a temptation. I can reason, even if I'm reasoning from false information that's being fed to me by this possibly evil world and the possibly evil body that I've been, that I've been, you know, cursed to exist within. Even if I'm being fed all this false information, I'm still able to reason on the basis of that false information. But there's one thing in all of this that simply cannot be a lie. One simple fact that I can't be tricked about. I think. I know that much. And, and if I'm thinking. Well, then at the very least, I must exist, because how else am I going to be thinking if there isn't an I there in the first place, right? 
So, I think, therefore, I am. That much, at least, in this, in the sea of confusion and doubt and possible trickery that is the very nature of Descartes' existence, I think, therefore, I am, at least that much is certain, at least that much is not a trick. It simply cannot be otherwise. Now, it might not be much, it might not seem like much to us, right? This is not, you know, this is not a conclusion that's going to carry us through every, uh, every aspect of our lives. This is not the, the, the final philosophy that's going to answer every question we have. But imagine Descartes' elation on managing to craft this one solid, verifiable plank on what is otherwise a completely endless ocean of uncertainty. If you accept the premise of his uncertainty about the state of the world, again, the idea that, you know, for example, a, a demon might have cast a spell uh, on you such that everything you think and experience is just an illusion. I, I think that we really have no choice. I if we accept that premise, or even if we accept, shall we say, that the validity of that concern to say like, okay, it, it's possible. It's, it's, there's not a 0% chance that this is a possibility given the structure of who and what we are. Of course, in our, our more modern debates, we've gone, you know, we've, we've made all these advances. We're so scientific. We think totally differently now in our, in our hyper-modern era. Therefore, philosophers have replaced the evil demon with an evil scientist who is using electrodes and a brain in the vat, as we discussed in the last series, to do exactly the same thing Descartes was worried about in the first place. So, to some extent, we have to accept this concern, at least in the abstract, at least as a kind of pushing a logical conclusion or pushing a logical question as far to one side as we possibly can. We have to, therefore, at least accept the possibility of the validity of this concern. So if we do that, imagine Descartes' elation on having found this, this one solid point that he could start to build from. Now, in fairness, working from this first principle, this first philosophy, Descartes does eventually get around to postulating that we can and should trust our sense impressions, if only because God is good, and he wouldn't let us be lied to in that way. But still, I, it really is the, the premise of this work that so fascinates me, because it truly is a rock-solid foundation, something we can't, there's no logical way around that. Therefore, if, you know, if Descartes continues to use his logic well, if he continues to use that, that European faculty of, of reason as well as he should to go from point to point to point, building from that first philosophy, well, he's sure to have a very solid philosophical edifice at the end, as long as he has accurately incorporated all the facts and, and logically put them together in the right way. But again, we're not here to talk about Descartes' whole philosophy. It's just that first principle that so fascinates me. Now, I talk about all this to point out that the trend in philosophy at this stage of its modern development in, in, in Europe, and recall that Descartes in, in France, obviously, and Locke in England, uh, or England and, and hereabout in Europe, they were, they were very much contemporary. So, so they were working from a very similar mindset in philosophy. So again, this stage of philosophical development in Europe really is about first principles. We don't get to start in the middle asking questions about how, for example, language and meaning relate to real things in the world and our impressions of them. 
we start with the basics. What is the world? Is there a world? Is the real world the same as the world my senses report to me? Is there any of my experiences that I can consider verifiable in such a way that it's even possible to build a philosophy or a science on the basis of it? And this is exactly how we need to think of Locke, and specifically what we'll be talking about with Locke, which is his political and social philosophy. Locke was working from first principles, but again, working in a very different area than Descartes was. Instead of worrying about what Descartes worried about, uh, and for Descartes, it's really what amounts to one of the first modern treatises on the philosophy of mind, Locke is attempting to forge the first principles of, again, a philosophy of, of governance, of liberty, of society, and what we will eventually come to call, and Locke would not use these terms, but we will eventually come to come to talk about a thing called civil society. Well, that's what Locke is, is really concerned with in the work that we are going to focus on today and in our next show. And, and that's why we have to pause again to talk about what civil society looked like when Locke was born, Locke is growing up, and, and, and as he eventually is, is coming to think and write, what is, the, what is the context that Locke is working on? What does civil society look like to Locke at this point in time? Well, let's dial the clock back just a little bit to March 24th, 1603, about 30 years before Locke was born, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, passed away after a reign of 45 years. Now, I, I gotta tell you, I just can't, I, I, I want so desperately to get sucked backward into history and to talk about the wildly unsettled circumstances of the English throne when Elizabeth first sat on it. I, I want to discuss the fact that, uh, if I can use words that, that Elizabeth most certainly would not have used, Elizabeth was building up the very idea of a modern nation state in those 45 years of reign and rule. But I just can't. I just can't do that. Temptation notwithstanding, we don't have the time for it. Got to know when to kind of cut our losses and say uh, we're just not turning down this road right now. You know, as it is, we're going to keep poor Locke waiting more than long enough. So let's just uh, move forward with this history and 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 see what we can learn from it. Elizabeth passes away after a lengthy reign of forty-five years. Is extremely good in this era of history. And it's a reign of strength. It's a reign of stability as a mostly absolute monarch. And we'll talk about what the, the sort of exceptions to Elizabeth's absolute monarchy are. And, and we can say, far from perfect, but her reign does a lot of really impressive things, particularly for the time in history that she's in. It diffuses religious tensions, which were absolutely boiling over when she took the throne. It solidifies England's, England's standing amidst its more powerful European neighbors with only comparatively minimal conflicts. As to say, uh, unlike many of her forebears, her entire reign was not spent at war. It was, there were really only a couple significant conflicts that we want to talk about. And in the midst of all this, she cultivates a satisfied and, let's say, just powerful enough, but not too powerful, parliament. And she creates one of these, really, overall, what you'd have to say is most significant is she creates one of these rare sort of oases of, of calm and general well-being in a very young country that operates under an, um, under an absolute monarchy. Of course, those periods of calm, if you read these histories, those periods of calm are, 
are rare. And even as just a reader of history, you you kind of get to take a breath while Elizabeth is on the throne and know that, okay, at least tomorrow we know the whole thing is not going to collapse in on itself and need to change radically. At least we've got some stability that we can look to, look to for four and a half decades here of Elizabeth's reign. So when she passes away, she does so without a natural born heir. And she seemingly, I, I would I would say, I'm reading in, into the history here, but I'd say she somewhat begrudgingly and with very, very minimal prior notice passes power to James VI, King of Scotland, who then becomes James I, King of England. Now, to skip right to James's essence, he was a great lover of parties, perhaps not so great a lover of responsibility, and he was a firm believer in, underline at this time, absolute monarchy, underline absolute, absolute monarchy, or at the, at the very least, if we want to be more accurate, perhaps it wasn't so much of a political philosophy as one of, he had a very firm belief in the absolute nature of his own monarchy, whatever he might've thought of anyone else's in theory. Now we can take this as I'm talking about this absolute monarchy, we, we can take this in James's case to mean an unbending, uncompromising power which we would compare and contrast to Elizabeth's more politically savvy and face-saving brand of the same basic structure of authority. So what I mean is even if both James and Elizabeth would eventually get their way, they, the, the buck most assuredly stopped with either of them, even if the bottom line was almost always the same, Elizabeth would achieve her goals while placating the egos of Parliament and others in court, and nurturing this sense of a kind of shared power. James had no interest whatsoever in such niceties. Now, this is not to say that Elizabeth was some sort of proto-Republican uh, or, or anything to that effect. She, she's not what we would recognize today as, you know, if, if we just transplanted her forward in history, she would have very little sense of what to do with the current structure of the English monarchy. It would not suit her tastes whatsoever. But if the development of an entity like Parliament, and truly, I, yet another little side road that I'd love to go down, and I think eventually we will on this show, but that's way, way, way into the future. When we think about an entity like Parliament, it, which it, it's truly, it's this fascinating instance of an engine of self-government that really builds itself up over the course of centuries. Now, if cultivating a thing like parliament required royalty that would occasionally let it grow and strengthen and define its role more broadly, give it just a little bit of room to breathe and begin to learn what it was and, and learn by its own actions what it could and should be doing, well, we can say that Elizabeth was one of the rulers whose support allowed Parliament to grow by granting it a certain kind of dignity, and at least the perception of power and sway. Whereas, perhaps you'd say that James and his son, who we'll be, we'll be getting to as well, they were the type of rulers who helped Parliament grow more powerful precisely because they tried to take all of its, at that time, very minimal power away. They got into a fight with Parliament, put this more directly, they got into a fight with Parliament that they eventually lost, which, of course, 
winning a fight that's going to do wonders to define your your self image right uh particularly in this era of of political development and anyway back to our good friend james the first perhaps worse than either or any of the faults that i kind of listed above those being his preference for absolute authority and his utter distaste for responsibility worse than either of those faults in the eyes of the tastemakers of england was the fact that James was a boorish Scottish bumpkin who did very little to beautify the once regal and gracious court that he, that he inherited. Which is why it's remarkable, if you, if you think about it historically, this is why it's kind of remarkable that it was actually James's son, Charles I, who was driven from the throne and eventually executed, rather than James himself. Now, Charles, again, James's son, Charles was even more unbending than his father, and he had this habit for a variety of reasons, and, and some of them are understandable. If you really dive deep into the history, some of them are understandable, but many of them are not. He had this habit of treading on and usurping the comparatively small portion of power that Parliament had at that time in history. He also seemed to actively incite conflict on religious grounds, which very soon meant you know, after you spend a lot of time uh, inciting conflict on religious grounds, pretty soon you're going to end up, in this period in history, pretty soon you're going to end up with a conflict on the battleground. It, it, now, it's a very complicated mix of causes that led Charles to being deposed and, as I say, executed. And we're not really going to dive deep into the, to any of them right here any more than we already have. Uh, I will say, many of you probably know Mike Duncan. And his podcast, he has a, a great treatment on this period in history in his Revolution series. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's, it's just fantastic. Particularly, there's there's one episode that he kind of talks about. It sort of delves a bit into the way people were talking about political freedom in this juncture of history. And it's so foreign and so strange and so interesting. And yet you can see kind of like the evolutionary development, you can see the early, early ancestors of the a lot of the political axioms and ideas that we as citizens now, I wouldn't say take for granted, but at least assume that this should be part of our social contract. We should have this, this degree of power. We should have this degree of say. We should have this amount of protection from overreach by the government. All of this was brand new at this juncture in history. And to hear the way people were talking about these ideas of freedom at that time, again, in the, in the 1600s, absolutely fascinating to compare with today, which is, again, kind of why I want to go into this and talk about it more from specifically our little lens of, of freedom and, and that kind of thing. But I completely digress. Absolutely check out the Duncan series. It's, it's really, really good. Now, after Charles is deposed, England passes 10 years with a functional but unstable, quote-unquote, Republican government. And let's really underline the, the quotation marks there, if, that, if that's something that we can sensibly do in, in our grammar and syntax and, and with our word processing programs here. This is not Republican the way we would recognize it. In fact, there were aspects of this government that were far more authoritarian than England had experienced since prior to Elizabeth's time, and we'll talk briefly about why that is. But in any event, this quote-unquote Republican government known as the Protectorate, in which a fellow named Oliver Cromwell, who many of you have probably heard of. Now, Oliver Cromwell, uh, he was really just a member of Parliament, but in the absence of any established means of deciding who should be in charge, 
he plays this odd role of a sort of reforming dictator. Now, you may recall Mill talking about the necessity of societies in their quote-unquote nonage being reformed via, via dictatorship. Well, now we can agree with that statement or not, but at least here we can see that this is an, is an example of what Mill was talking about. And presumably, to some extent, this was one of the historical examples that Mill was calling up in his mind as he sort of imagined the times in a, in a society's development in which dictatorship or despotism might be required. Again, we don't need to accept that idea, but perhaps understanding this particular juncture of history will help us understand why Mill probably didn't see it as being quite so awful a statement as we do today. But I completely digress. Now, the structure of English government at this stage, though it is theoretically more Republican, like I said, during the Protectorate, the structure of English government was in fact perhaps more reliant on the force of Cromwell's personality than had been the historically established power of royalty or of any given monarch, at least for the last couple hundred years prior to this time. Now, when Cromwell passes away, Cromwell, who's become this, this force of personality, this the, essentially the, the single leader of this government, just based on the fact that he was the one guy able to kind of stand up and, and, and do what he perceived had to be done at that time to take control of pretty out of control situation. When he passes away, power devolves to his son, which again, so when I say quote unquote Republican, I really mean quote unquote Republican because in Republican without any kind of quotation marks, we don't typically think of power being passed directly from father to son without any kind of process uh, to, to mediate how exactly that works. In any event, once that happens, given the nature of Cromwell's son, not a bad guy, but by no means so forceful as his father was, once this happens, it becomes clear that the days of the protectorate are numbered. So seeing this, Parliament as a whole, having established a number of reforms during Cromwell's reign that further established and codified its power, Seeing that the days of the, of the protectorate are numbered, not knowing what its alternatives are, it does what sounds like a pretty strange thing to us now and invites Charles I's son, Charles II, who had fled overseas in the midst of all this uh, prior unpleasantness, they invite him to return to the throne hoping that the, shall we say, hard and definitive lessons that had been taught to his father would sort of inform the restraint and the sensibility of the son. And now, amazingly, and though I'm sure you're all thinking like, hey, this is a great idea. Let's enthrone the son of the fellow that we previously deposed and killed. And, you know, that's going to be, if we're going to, if we want stability, this is how we get it, right? Makes perfect sense. Yet, strangely, this is going to come as a shock, strangely, England was soon, once again, in a state of revolution, culminating in two events. First, Charles II's niece, Mary and her husband, William of Orange, William and Mary, we've heard about this couple presumably before. At this point, William, uh, uh, William of Orange is the stadtholder of Holland and the Dutch Republic. 
very different government structure in Holland and the Dutch Republic, which I'd, I'd love to get into. Not going to. In any event, he is very much a leader in his own right when uh, he gets the call, as it were, from England. They are invited, William and Mary are invited to rule in the place of James II, son of Charles II, who is now also deposed, and Parliament pens what is called the Declaration of Rights, or the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights first lists a number, it's, it's kind of a cool document, the first thing it does is goes through a number of grievances against the recently deposed James II, essentially by way of justifying the extraordinary or you know if you know as we've seen not unprecedented but still extraordinary move of deposing him so it gets all the grievances out and says hey listen if you'd been dealing with this dude you'd know not cool here's all the reasons we're going to go down the list but we kind of get past that which is somewhat historically more transient we we might say but then it goes on to very clearly and very forcefully describe the rights and the privileges of Parliament as it sees them on a level of detail and with an extent of defined power that truly is unprecedented in this nation's history. Now, this Bill of Rights is written in 1689. John Locke's second, you remember John Locke? I don't know if, long time ago on this podcast, we, we talked about John Locke. I mean, not much, you know, I don't know if anyone remembers back when we did that. That's way back there. You know, just kind of, you know, for those of you who've been with us for, for a while, have, have been listening to the show, maybe you remember way back in the day when we talked about John Locke. Any event, John Locke's second treatise of government was also published in 1689. So big year for landmark documents. Now, also for what it's worth, Locke had been in exile in Holland and was traveling in the same party of William and Mary when, as presumably more enlightened monarchs, and, and they would prove to be that, as presumably more enlightened monarchs, they were invited to, to take over the, the throne of England and with the assumption that they would recognize the value of a balanced rather than an absolute monarchy. And so as they're traveling to England to assume the throne, Locke is right there with them in their traveling party. So we, we kind of see how deeply enmeshed in the actual political events of his day he is. Now, all this is to say that Locke is both a product of and a player in these times in which in the Western and particularly English and thereafter and therefore American systems of government this sort of long, vague notion of parliamentary government becomes somewhat more clear, somewhat more codified, and also this time in history where, as a counterbalance, the reign of the monarch, now for the first time referred to as a constitutional monarch, the reign of that monarch began to be circumscribed and not quite so absolute, not quite so you really get to do whatever you want unless it really rubs people the wrong way and there's enough power opposing you to push back a bit. Now we begin to see rules that say, okay, here are the boundary lines of your power. Here is, here's our territory and here's what we as parliament get to do, whether you like it or not. And here's how we're going to kind of create this, this notion of, if you will excuse a phrase that was not used at the time, checks and balances between these two sources of power. Now, as I say, it pains me to do this so quickly, and we can put quotation marks around that too, because I know I've been talking for the, about this for a while, 
but it does pain me to go through this so quickly. I, I think there's a really interesting story to tell about how this parliament came to exist at all, because it really happened so naturally, so organically, over, over really a millennium. And it just slowly took on more definition, slowly took on more power. Again, almost like you would think of an evolutionary process. To me, very, very fascinating. Of course, we in America tend to think that representative governments can just be created, right? You cannot have one one day. And after, you know, admittedly some, some difficult conversations and some yelling and screaming and some going back and forth and some political horse trading, well, you know, after maybe a difficult hot summer, well, you go from not having a representative government to, to having one, and, and that's just the way it works. Well, not in history. Of course, these things had to happen for the first time, and these folks in Parliament in the 1600s certainly had no precedent to work from and say, oh, yes, we will design a Parliament roughly similar to that one over there. That is what we want ours to look like. Kind of having to invent this for the first time, and, and that's really pretty cool to watch. But that is also most certainly a story for another day. Now, from all of that, in my opinion, we really have one fundamental takeaway. John Locke is there to witness, to think about, and to help craft a watershed moment in the evolution of representative government. That fact certainly informed what, what were his own quest for quote-unquote, first principles upon which governments of the governance of peoples could rest. Now compare this again with Mill writing two centuries later and the types of government that he had always lived under his entire life. Consider this also as we continue to return to this notion of chauvinism in European styles of reasoning. For Locke, at this juncture in history, and then later, again, 200 years later, for Mill in his juncture of history, there is a real demonstrable, and I think you could go so far as to say a more or less objective progress that is occurring here, and that is occurring in time with the progress of this European style of rationality. So as people, and perhaps even society, becomes more and more rational, as institutions replace traditions uh, uh, with rational structure, as science is advancing, as philosophy is advancing, as, as all this thinking is happening, right around the same time, real progress is occurring in government. If these couple hundred years in, in English history, from Locke to Mill, if that is your only sample size of uh, only sample of human history, if that's what you base all your conclusions about the human the nature of human kind, if, if, if you base all those conclusions on this juncture in history, I think you can see why we'd come to assume that perhaps we discovered this kind of magical way that we can create real, persistent, and ongoing progress so that the needle is just going to keep pointing upward, driven uh, and structured by this style of rationality that is used in England and in, at this point in, in Europe generally. So as we talk about that style of rationality and what we will start to identify as the chauvinism of that style of rationality, meaning that, you know, this is the only way to conduct reason. This is the only way to think. This is the one 
path that we can take to the one truth at the top of the mountain, the, the real objective truth that applies to everything. Well, maybe if we see this history and see folks like Locke and Mill and their place within it, perhaps we can understand why they might have tricked themselves into thinking that, yes, they had discovered the definitive path forward, not only for the human mind, but for society as a whole, and you know, based on the relationship between the two. Again, these notions of rationality and all of this real objective progress that we see in government and in the economy and in education and in all these other structures of civil society. But surely I digress. So let's dive in at long last and talk about John Locke and his second treatise of government. Now to talk about the second treatise of government, and I really hesitate to do any more, but first let's do some background kind of stuff. But first, let's do some background kind of stuff. Locke spent his first treatise of government, we're going to do this very briefly. Locke spent his first treatise of government doing what was at the time extremely important work, but it is work that is less relevant to us now. And I'll let Locke explain it in a summary that he provides at the very beginning of his second treatise. And I'll be annotating this quote as we go, just so it makes a little bit more sense. So excuse me, it'll be, I think, pretty clear when I'm talking, when I'm reading Locke and when I'm talking in my own voice. So from the second treatise of government, referring to the first treatise of government, quote, it having been shown in the foregoing discourse, again, meaning the first treatise, one, that Adam, we're talking about the biblical Adam, that Adam had not, either by natural right of fatherhood or by positive donation from God, any such authority over his children or dominion over the world as is pretended. In a roundabout way, what Locke is saying there is, that Adam was not the first king of the world. He was not the first government authority of the world. So going back to the quote. The second part, part two, that if he had, if he had that power, his heirs yet had no right to it. Meaning that even if somehow Adam was the king of the world, well, that doesn't just necessarily mean that that, that same power gets passed down to his heirs. Returning to the quote, part three, that if his heirs had, as to say, had any right to that power, there being no law of nature nor positive law of God that determines which is the right heir in all cases that may arise, the right of succession and consequently of bearing rule could not have been certainly determined. Part four, that even if it had been determined, Yet the knowledge of which is the eldest line of Adam's posterity being so long since utterly lost that in the races of mankind and families of the world there remains not to one above another the least pretends to be the eldest house and who have the right of inheritance. Unquote. So I, I know I stopped the annotation with the last two pieces of that and they were uh, perhaps even thicker and more obtuse than, than the beginning. So just to summarize this, Locke is beginning this, this process of his second treatise of government, or rather is accomplishing in his first treatise of government, essentially by proving that God did not essentially dictate 
that certain people should rule over all others absolutely simply by matter of birth. So basically what he's saying is there's just no way to rationally link Adam, the first man, Adam, to some kind of line of necessary God-chosen rulers. So basically what he's doing is throwing shade at this entire notion of royalty dictated by God, which of course had been the foundation of English and, and many other European governments for as long as anyone could remember. Now, he argues that even if you admit that Adam, as the first man, he might have had, so even if you admit that he had some kind of inherent God-given right of rule, it's still practically impossible to thereafter trace how that right of rule could possibly have passed down through the generations to some of mankind, but not to others. And, and how exactly do we know that William and Mary are those, those chosen descendants versus James II versus someone else entirely. Bottom line for Locke in his first treatise, monarchs were not born with some special quality of overlordship in the, in the world. Royalty was based on historical circumstance. It was contingent. It was not based on the word of God. Now again, that might not seem like shocking news to us today, but of course it counts as extremely controversial in Locke's time. The right of monarchy to rule as a consequence of, the, of their ancestry, like I said, this was the foundation of most government, certainly most government in Europe. He was not, after all, in, in exile, Locke. He wasn't in exile as a consequence of, you know, some overdue library books, right? He, these are controversial things that he's saying. Though, you know, perhaps as we just came off of our discussion on, on race theory, discussing how our, our, our quote-unquote buddy, the Comte, basically said that, you know, based on our bloodlines, based on our heredity, that we can justify both nobility and imperialism, it's, it's very funny to hear that entire idea shut down in just a couple paragraphs very succinctly by our good friend John Locke here, but, you know, that's more as an aside. Now, let's remember also how little else John Locke could presume at this point. He's, he's a lot like Descartes. He is starting from first principles. He certainly did have prior thinkers, prior writing to draw on. Every philosopher does. But there was no immediate presumption of the rightness of democracy or republicanism. Now, it's easy to make the mistake of assuming, of essentially assuming that what is obvious to us now must somehow have been very obvious to John Locke as well, that brilliant as he was, he could just kind of look at the, the way things were and say, but you know what would be better is if we did this and this and people voted and, and, and actually it wasn't some hereditary position, it was an elected position that was, the, that was the very top job and that has some relationship to the parliament. But of course, you know, that's silly. We can't assume that. Locke himself had very limited experience with Republican governments, and he was also operating in a time in which the majority of people simply assumed that government via monarchy was just the way things were supposed to be, and that even if we factor in that weird protectorate period, still, the, none of this just kind of leads magically to the conclusion that obviously democracy and republicanism are some sort of 
magical answers to all this. None of that just kind of follows necessarily from anything that these folks are seeing at this time. So this is why, when we read John Locke, as I said above, we really do get the sense of someone building something very much for the first time, seemingly, again, with only whatever sort of naturally available pieces he can cobble together from the world around him. He is beginning, as Descartes did, with the very first, most basic, incontrovertible principles, and he's building up from there. Now for Locke, and this is interesting, the first principle is nature. What was humankind like before having a strange history of governments and states and wars and rulership and, and again, essentially what we would call civil society? He didn't use the term. We will. What was, society, what were, what was humankind like before all of these external structures had been imposed upon it? If you strip all that away, you have man in a state of nature. Let's hear John Locke on this, because I think it's very important. Again, this is, this is where we start from. This is our first principle that John Locke is working from. Quote, To understand political power right and derive it from the original, we must consider what state all men are naturally in and that it is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and depose of their possessions and persons as they think fit, within the bounds of the law of nature, without asking leave or depending on the will of any man. Unquote. So, in Locke's thinking, and this is not at all uncommon, to the thinking of his time. In Locke's thinking, there was this possible state of humanity. Actually, it was, it was a necessary state. It was, this, it was the state from which humanity first emerged. It's where we started, not where we are now, but it's where we started. It preceded any kind of civilizing, quote-unquote, civilizing influence, or at least it preceded the current state of society with its governments and some people ruling and some people being ruled and all the rest of that. For Locke, this state of nature, which, by the way, of course, may seem reminiscent to anyone raised in or, or, or taught Christianity, but this state of nature was idyllic in every sense, including that it somehow preceded the existence of all conflict and all strife. Now, it certainly is a consequence of his deeply felt Christianity, uh, but, you know, Locke's notion of a state of nature certainly is somewhat more beatific than, you know, for example, mine would be. I mean, sure, I, I love a good hike in the mountains, but if I thought those mountains were filled with people who lived only by the quote-unquote laws of nature, chances are I'm thinking twice. But let's stick with Locke as he lays out the foundation of his thinking. He says that the state of nature is, quote, a state also of equality wherein all power and jurisdiction is reciprocal, no one having more than another, there being nothing more evident than that creatures of the same species and rank, promiscuously born to all the same advantages of nature and the use of the same faculties, should also be equal amongst one another, without subordination or subjection. Unquote. 
Now, it's striking to me that these are Locke's presumptions about the quote-unquote natural state of man. And it's particularly striking when we think about the moment in history that Locke occupies. It would not seem to suggest to me this state of history, this point in history, that the natural state of man was, again, quote, also a state of equality, unquote. But it's important to recall that for Locke, all the bad stuff that can and typically does happen in society, all the lack of freedom, all the abuse of power, all the social evil and pain in the world, that's all actually a byproduct of the systems of civilization, of, again, the term we would use that he would not, of civil society. Now, of course, when Locke talks about the state of nature, as I sort of alluded to, it sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. But it's important that we not assume that the state of nature and Eden before the fall are exactly the same thing in Locke's thinking. Locke doesn't address this directly in the second treatise, but it, of course, important to the story of Adam and Eve that once they have fallen, once they ate of the apple on the tree of knowledge, their status of innocence and grace could not be reattained, at least not on earth, by Adam and Eve or by their many descendants. Now, by contrast, though he's somewhat vague about it, Locke seems to think there is that it's not impossible for man to reattain this state of nature. And again, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely clear on the mechanism, but we can leave that to the side. Still, I do believe it's pretty significant that for Locke's thinking, it is not impossible that if we could somehow shed, us, shed ourselves of all these difficulties of civil society, all the, the corruption and the evil and the strife that, that can come with that, and if we can avoid what we're about to talk about, the state of war, which is much worse than either the state of civilization or the state of nature, that we could somehow come back to this idea of a state of nature. But again, not really our purview, and again, I'm not actually clear on exactly how it's supposed to work, but we'll leave that to the side for the moment. Now, I talked about the state of war. I referenced it briefly, rather. This is another term, the state of war, that we'll hear in a number of other philosophers from this era when thinking about the evolution of, again, civil society, government, what have you. This is kind of the far end of the extreme from the state of nature. And in Locke's way of thinking, it's it's essentially how we fall out of the state of nature by entering into the state of war, and then it is, it's also what necessitates the structures of civil society to essentially begin to moderate human interact, interactions such that they do not all devolve into the state of war. Let me give you Locke's quote on this, and then we'll, we'll break it down a bit. Quote, And hence it is that he who attempts to get another man into his absolute power does thereby put himself into a state of war with him. He that, in a state of nature, would take away the freedom that belongs to anyone in that state must necessarily be supposed to have a design to take away everything else. Men living together according to reason, without a common superior on earth with authority to judge between them, is properly the state of nature. But force, or a declared design of force, upon the person of another, where there is no common superior on earth to appeal to for relief, that is the state of war. Unquote. 
So to summarize, in a state of nature, we have no real civil society. Certainly no one in a state of nature is in power over anyone else because it's not needed. Everyone is living, to use, to use his phrase, according to nature. Everyone is equal to everyone else. Equality is, is kind of perfect and everything just operates in, I would say, a state of anarchy, but that applies kind of chaos. It's, it's, it's anarchy, but it's anarchy in which no government is actually required because everything just works the way it's supposed to without any outside interference. And yeah, you know, and this is the natural state of mankind. That's the other thing to, to to recognize here is that Locke continually pushes that this is the the state of mankind that that is I should say of humankind that that is most natural to us. This is what we were born into. This is our set natural state. However, everything changes when we come to the point of one human being attempting to take power or control over another. Once that happens, without any higher authority to appeal to, this attempt on the part of one person to take power over another leads to the state of war. The laws of reason and the, you know, what Locke would call the natural law, those no longer apply. Just as law takes a back, a back seat, uh, you know, you might say, to necessity in a time of war. It just the state, the laws of nature no longer apply once we have entered into this state of war wherein one person is trying to take power over another. So we need the structures of society and government to protect us from the quote-unquote state of war in which the more powerful simply do entirely as they please at the expense of the weak. But the systems of government, as noted, are imperfect. We, are, we have now very much entered into an imperfect world where nothing is exactly what we want it to be. Everything involves a degree, of course, of, of, of compromise. It also, this, this, uh, this, these systems of government, this civil society, that creates inequality. It creates compromises to freedoms. It creates problem after problem after problem. And if it weren't for those outside structures of society and government, Locke says that our true nature as human beings would drive us toward goodness and equality and peace. Which to me, and again, just accept completely the premises of Locke's philosophy, which I think we can all agree, this is perhaps a little bit outdated and, and we couldn't just lift this up directly and say, okay, yes, this tells us exactly how we're, we're supposed to live here. But even if you accept all of the premises of Locke's arguments so far, this notion that it's society and government and it's all the, these structures, which are to some extent keeping us imperfect, keeping us from entering into that, that state of nature that we were in and that we, we should still be in, that premise somewhat brushes over the fact you know, of how could we have ended up in this state of society? How did we end up in a state of war that led to society in the first place? But, I mean, perhaps it's as, as simple as the influence of sin as it is in the Garden of Eden, but as I say, I, I, I really encourage us not to take these two things, the Garden of Eden and the state of nature, as being perfectly, exactly analogous, because that's not really the way Locke talks about it. In all honesty, as I say, it, it really is a bit confusing, but I would summarize it as best I can like this. Man in a state of nature, that, that 
the perfect state of reason that we're meant to be in. Man in a state of nature lives in equality without the need for one person to rule over another, without the need for government and law and civil society and all those other things, which will never be perfect and thus, you know, continue to keep us imperfect, continue to be a compromise, essentially a compromise between what is potentially best in our nature and what is possibly worst in our nature. Because, again, in this state of nature, in this idealized state of reason and equality that we are meant to be in in some way, still, if in that state one person decides to try to exert power over another, to steal from them, to enslave them, just to hurt them, well, in that state of nature, there's no law to stop them from doing so because we didn't need law, right? We we reason and equality and this kind of beautific state of, of, of humankind was going to take care of that. We don't need laws if no one ever tries to do anything bad, right? So, but accepting this premise, again, in the state of nature, if someone then does try to take power over someone else, if someone does try to hurt them or steal from them or what have you, in that state, it simply becomes a question of who is stronger, the thief or the person protecting their, their possessions. So, you know, you try to steal from me, I will try to keep you from doing that. One of us will pre prevail, the other will lose, and it's really going to be based entirely on our respective strength. Might will make right in this case. And this is what uh, we enter into if Locke refers to this state of war. Also important to recognize that kind of once we start down this road, if we're in the state of nature and everything's going beautifully, it's all reason and equality, and it's really neat, and it's really pretty, and it's, it's awesome, and all that good stuff. If we start down this road, if I come and try and steal your bird guide, right, because we're going to need some bird guides in the, uh, in the state of nature, I would think. I come and try and steal your bird guide. You're going to try and push me away to keep it from happening. Well, okay, we're going to have that one conflict. It's not going to stop there, right? Conflict begets conflict begets conflict begets conflict. And that one act sort of serves to pull all of humanity down out of this, this beautific state. And since we don't have any structures of civil society at that point, well, now that we're out of the beautific state, there's nothing to stop us just constantly pushing and pulling and fighting and, you know, relying on the, the law of might making right in this state of war that we'll suddenly be in. So we have civil society to, to come in and build some structures and keep that, that state of war from being absolutely destructive. But because they are structures built in this very imperfect setting by imperfect people with imperfect demands being made upon them, of course, those systems will themselves be unperfect, uh, will, excuse me, will themselves be imperfect and there will remain these problems of corruption to a degree, violence to a degree, thievery to a degree, evil to a degree that we are just trying to mitigate with the state of civil society that we've built around it. And of course, if we wanted to read history in the way that I assume both Locke and later Mill would read history, we might say that, okay, if we, we look back at, at our history, if, you know, we, we look back to, again, say the European uh, Dark Ages, Middle Ages, and, and we use those terms dark, that particularly the term Dark Age, just to refer to Europe because everybody else was, was doing some great stuff. Uh, 
it was Europe where there was a Dark Age. So the European Dark Ages after the decline of Roman power. It was in that era that we might probably describe in our recorded history as the, as the one being closest to this state of war. And well, okay, so it's all operating by might makes right. And, and again, I'm, boy, am I doing a hack job on the history of the, the quote unquote dark and middle ages here. It is by no means this simple. It was not perfect squalor. It was not like something out of an old movie. But still, think of this broadly and think of this the way Mill and and maybe, or excuse me, Locke and maybe even Mill might have done so. We imagine in this, this sort of somewhat chaotic state of society, the pseudo um, state of war that we might be in. Well, actually, eventually, those laws, all those structures of civil society that, that we want to moderate that state of war, well, those are all going to eventually be introduced or start to be introduced by the person who ends up being strongest, right? I mean, this is the, the King Arthur myth here, right? It's the guy who wins all the wars. It's the guy who wins all the fights that eventually gets to start doing things like making laws and creating the structures of civil society. Now, that is actually a little bit closer to the way history actually works versus, I would say, then, you know, looking back through our recorded human history for some time akin to us all living in this state of nature. So you could argue that in, in Locke's structure here that the state of war is this kind of necessary evil that solves itself by the equation of might making right and starts building civil society to then moderate all of the potential destructiveness of that state. That's kind of me sort of superimposing some Hobbes on top of Locke, which Locke would by no means appreciate. And that's kind of me just trying to piece this together because he's stating this like a history, and yet it doesn't really reflect history as I understand it. I'm kind of trying to see how these things tie together. So this is all fairly figurative, and uh, don't take it too far as either a strong read of European or really any history. But that's that, I think, is how we can begin to make sense somewhat of, of Locke's model here. In any event, it's, it really leaves us with this idea of civil society as this imperfect mediate point between the very much perfect state of nature in which reason and equality guide all of our activities to the point that we don't even need civil society. You don't need a law if no one ever wants to steal. So you have that perfect state of society, which of course is perfect right up until someone stops being perfect and tries to hurt me or steal from me or whatever else, which immediately plunges us all the way to the other side of the spectrum, which is the state of war. And then the state of war, from the state of war, we maybe are able to build up these structures of civil society that keep the state of war at bay, but which again, remain very, very much imperfect, very, very much a compromise to our own nature and a compromise to our own promise as human beings. So again, though imperfect, Locke believes that it is these structures of civil society, those structures that keep humanity from descending back into a total abject state of war. And that, I'm afraid, is where we're going to have to leave it for today. Next time, we're going to continue to work through Locke as he actually starts to do some of the work that 
that really I, I think we will find most pertinent as he starts to build these structures of what, again, we would call civil society. You wouldn't, but we do. As he starts to build these structures of what is called civil society on the foundation of this of this mediate point between the the laws of nature and the state of war. And it's and essentially, again, he's going to be doing this from scratch. He's not going to be starting us off saying, so, you know, as we see in this parliamentary document over here, no, no, he's going to start us right from scratch at this, at the, you know, building from just where we kind of imagined him starting out. He's, he's kind of in the middle of nowhere. He has some simple tools and all he has are those tools and the natural resources he finds around himself. And from that, he is going to build up this structure, this same structure that we will see evolving both in reality and in rational thinking over the course of the hundreds of years that follow Locke onto Mill and Hegel and, and others moving forward in history. But until then, I thank you very much for joining us today. I do hope folks enjoyed the slight diversion, doing a little bit more of a history bent in this for all that it was not a good, strong, totally comprehensive uh, history of England in the 17th century. Still, I do certainly hope you enjoyed it, and I hope we'll see you again next week. I'm looking forward to it.